Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Hello and welcome to American History 2, A to Z, the first edition of 2020. Uh, hello Malcolm, is it a new year, new you? No, new year, same old me, nothing changes. Yeah, that's quite the disappointment. Does that mean does that does that mean we're not allowed to chit chat and you want to go straight into the letter again? Yeah, I don't do small talk, Mark. You know that. Yeah. Okay. Small talk going. Yeah. Uh, the letter J. Okay. Today. Yeah, we're doing we're doing yeah. J. Okay. So uh, is the magic hat prepared? Yep, I'm ready to juke my hand into okay, it. Okay. Let's have something from the magic hat. Okay. The John Birch Society. Oh, amazing! The John Birch Society. Uh, for those that don't know, uh. Society of extreme anti-communists uh, and also conspiracy theorists, and because the two are, are, are deeply linked in American history, established in 1958 by a, how can I put this kindly, slightly eccentric businessman uh, called Robert Welch. Candy manufacturer, wasn't Candy he? manufacturer, I think. And yeah. he founded, he was, he was a real anti-communist, as, as many people were in the, that year. So in 1958, he finds, founds the, the John Birch Society uh, and... He believed that almost everyone that he disagreed with was a communist. There's one of the, one of his best quotes. I, I absolutely love this quote from him. Uh, in 1958, he said, "My firm belief that Dwight Eisenhower is a dedicated conscious agent of the communist conspiracy is based on an accumulation of detailed evidence so extensive and so palpable that it seems to me to put this conviction beyond any reasonable." Doubt. Du- Eisenhower was a commie. Dwight Eisenhower. <laughs> General Dwight D. Eisenhower. President Eisenhower. You know, yeah, the fact... That- Massive retaliation, Eisenhower. Well, yes, that was part of his like nuclear policy, yeah. But the, the belief that Dwight Eisenhower was an agent of the Soviet Union is incredible. And that kind of encapsulates uh, what the John Birch Society were all about. They were... Extreme anti-communi- anti-communists in the era of the Cold War, uh, and maintained a kind of a level of uh, profile uh, and kind of well, not so much influence, but their belief system. One of the interesting things about what I'm trying to get to is one of the interesting things about the John Birch Society is what was seen as a kind of fairly extreme conspiratorial view of American politics and American society and everything. It's kind of the mainstream now. You know, the stuff that the Birchers were saying, you know, the belief that fluoridation of the water was a communist conspiracy. That kind of thing, which some Birchers actually believed in. Kind of, kind of imagine, you know, the vaccination sort of view, viewpoint that's out there just now. The, the Trumpian viewpoint, 
in which everything's a conspiracy. Everything's for you or against you. It's this like very, very, you know, Manichaean black and white kind of thing. That is now the main, that is now the mainstream. That is now American politics. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and and also, I mean, I'm I'm just reviewing a book just now um, on the 1964 election. Obviously, when when Lyndon Johnson defeats Barry Goldwater in a landslide, and the John Birch Society play quite an interesting role mm. in that because obviously Johnson's whole campaign against Goldwater is to make you think he's a crazy right wing extremist who might well end the world through nuclear war. You know, see the Daisy ad and all that. And one of the things that really helps Johnson makes make that case convincing. It means that a whole load of Republicans end up voting for him because they're scared of Goldwater. Is the fact that Barry Goldwater will not distance himself from the John but He won't disavow them. He won't say no, they're Looney Tunes. He's like, he won't say they're good guys, but he's like, well, I'm I'm willing to have support from anyone who gives me and I don't have to believe everything they believe and all that kind of stuff. So while they've never, I mean, I know you're saying some of their conspiratorial ideas became mainstream, but the actual society itself was never an influential player mm, per no, se, no, no, no. In, in mainstream politics, but they still were able to have an effect on, on elections. And just a small point, uh, which I always found interesting, was the fact that the John Birch, uh, where the name came from, was he was a naval in, or was he an intelligence officer that was uh, shot in 1945 by the communist Chinese forces. And therefore, Robert Welsh dedicated this society to him. But I think people that knew John Birch said he really, really would not have liked this society to be named after. But I mean, there's that thing that their mode of thinking, not necessarily what they believe, but their mode of thinking has become come the mainstream. And I mean, even back in the, the early 1960s, I mean, you know, Goldwater had his almost, you know, fine people on both sides kind of moment with the Birchers. But prior to that, I mean, a lot of mainstream conservatives were distancing themselves, notably William F. Buckley and the National Review and everything. I mean, because Buckley kind of excoriates the John Birch Society as doing untold damage to the conservative cause and all of these kind of things. So he and kind of many of that kind of element of American conservatism are really distancing themselves uh, from the from the Birchers. So, yeah, they're an... It's, I mean, they still exist today. The, the John Birch Society is still, still on the go. And... Uh, yeah, but an interesting outgrowth of this kind of like 1950s Cold War anti-communist era in American politics. Yeah, blame Indiana. Like Indiana, for some reason, had a really strong Ku Klux Klan as well, and the John Birch Society came out of Indiana. Well, there you go. Oh, and also go. one last thing, and <laughs> the John Birch Society were one of the things that made Richard Hofstadter, the historian, really angry and got him to write his grouchy but still fascinating uh, paranoid style in American politics. Indeed. Tick, tick, tick. Shall we move on? Shall we move on? I feel like, I feel like that is the John Birch Society let, well let, and truly let, boxed Let it. us move on and reach into the magic sorting hat. I think that's a pop cultural reference young people might get. Uh, and what's the, what comes out the other side? And this time it is Jackson. Whatever Jackson you choose, choose to look at. Ooh, there's been a lot of Jacksons in American history. Yeah, I could even just talk about the state capital of Mississippi if I wanted to. Nice. I just wanted to say that because I would like to show off my state capital knowledge. You know, just learning the states is for sissies. Um, I'll go with Michael Jackson. Um, and I'll try and steer clear of, you know, indicting our podcast against some sort of, you know, uh, lawsuit. Um, but I just find it really interesting when you look back to the, the 1980s, the, just the, the enormous role that Michael Jackson plays in... American culture and society in a sense, you know, 
he was until Michael Jackson comes along with the you know Thriller. You MTV doesn't play any black artists, and then they literally have to start playing black artists because Michael Jackson says his record company go you know well you either do this or you don't get Michael Jackson songs and they're like okay well we kind of need the most popular music in America um but you know I watched that documentary last year and you know like without you know saying anything libelous or whatever the you know there's a lot of evidence to suggest a certain thing happening and it's kind of strange because in teaching the 1980s and some of the huge celebrity figures that come out of that decade and just the target. I know exactly where then, this is going. You know, because exactly you've also got you've also got Bill Cosby as well, um, who who plays a huge role. Um, so it's and, and, and doubt, doubtless others. It's, I don't really know where I'm going with this, but yeah, it's, but that's a fascinating odd. thing that you. Know, I'm sure you do this in your uh, American history kind of survey course lectures as well that. You when you get to the nineteen eighties, of course, I mean that's the era of, you know, the real rise of SWAT teams from the nineteen seventies, of mass incarceration, of mandatory minimums, of you know the ways that particularly African Americans are are treated by law enforcement, you know, becomes even even worse if that's a, a possible thing. But yet we also talk about in our lectures about the positive role models that really start to appear, and like two of those ones are. Michael Jackson and Bill Cosby, alongside yeah. Oprah Winfrey. I was going to say, thank God, thank for, God Oprah for Oprah Winfrey. <laughs> uh, so, but it's you know interesting that now we're at a stage where uh, those two figures, Cosby and Jackson, have all of this evidence has come out that they were not who they claimed to be. That there was an extreme dark side that damaged many many people. Uh, that comes out of you know of that period. So that in itself, those two figures being so influential and so big, yet what we now know changes utterly our view of them. Yeah, you basically said what I was trying to say. So, so well done. Thank you. <laughs> right, we'll move on then. Um, okay. Harriet Jacobs. Harriet Jacobs. This is a flashback for us. I know, brilliant. Because, uh, so Harriet Jacobs, uh, abolitionist, former enslaved person, uh, author of the brilliant uh, testament of slavery, Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl. Uh, and our first exposure to that was teaching on the American History 2 uh, module for second year undergraduates at the University of Edinburgh. Uh, and it's, uh, I still use, I don't know if you still use it, but I still use Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl uh, in, in my teaching to get across the the power of these testimonies, their value as sources for the historian, but also the, I mean, what's really valuable about, about Jacobs's, uh text is the kind of the, the gendered nature of slavery, the way in which the, the, the sufferings of, of female enslaved people are really, really brought out in, the, in that novel in quite a, a horrifying and, you know, I, I hesitate to use the word graphic because there's a certain reticence to be too graphic in it because of the, the mores of the era. Uh, but it still has an immense amount of power. And I still have some, anyone interested in American history, I think it's one of those books that, that people should read, even now. Yeah, yeah. I remember it was one of those, I, I, you know, I always like to teach in a light-hearted way. There was no way to be no. light-hearted about Instance in the Life of a Slave Girl. It was, it was brutal reading. Um, it, but, I mean, it was really clever because, I mean, 
So it's published in 1861, so right at the outbreak of the Civil War, yeah. basically. And, and the whole sort of the way that the it's written is to target these northern white women. If you remember, you know, yes, basically yeah. trying to say, look what slavery does to to women, essentially in the way of to their chastity, to their sexuality, you know, and actually sort of appeal to the old school values, you know, old school conservative values, saying, you know, slavery destroys them. Um, so, so hence you should support abolition. Um, but I always find it quite interesting in it, um, cause it. Ha- I think it's because it comes out of the outbreak of the Civil War. It's kind of forgotten about quickly at the time. Yeah, yeah. And people don't. She writes in a pseudonym. Is it Linda? Linda Brent, Brent oh, what? is yeah. the name of the character. The, yeah. the, is her avatar within the? Yeah, within and the she book. and so nobody. So like for ages, nobody knew who wrote it. There was a lot of speculation. It was someone else. Um, people thought it was a fictionalised account they didn't think it was real um, because I mean there is a lot of crazy ways that she goes through to actually escape in, in the first place um, and I think it was the 1980s that finally historians uncovered that no it was it was Harriet Jacobs that wrote it um, because I think people thought it was a white woman a white abolitionist yes, yeah, yeah. who had written it um, so it shows it's, it's amazing just how long you know 120 years after it was written and finally Harriet Jacobs got credit for yeah. it you know uh, you know, some historians do important work. You know, not us, but you know, yeah, some historians yeah. do. <laughs> Absolutely, right. Moving on. That's a that's a, a great blast in the past, though. That was a uh, that was one of those kind of like sources that I'd never really I'd never looked at before uh, in in my career, and it was. Ve- it contrasted well with Douglas because I think yes. we did Frederick Douglas the first couple of years, and then we changed to Harry yeah. Jacobs, and the you know they they were good bedfellows. It was it was sobering, and that's putting it lightly. Anyway, so uh, why do I pick from the hat? Yes. No. Okie dokie. Let's go from the hat. Uh, Janis Joplin. Ah, Janis Joplin. Uh, Janis Joplin was someone I knew absolutely nothing about until I did a course called The American Counterculture way back when I was a master's student, which... uh, which was fascinating, but included a lot of literature that was completely out of my depth. Um, But... One of the the really interesting things about it was learning about the impact of all these um, artists and the, and the musical artists and the festivals that come along in the in the mid to late nineteen sixties. And Janis Joplin has this fascinating career whereby she only really sort of hits it big, if I remember correctly, at the Monterey Music Festival, which is this, which is kind of the type of festival you would think of when you think of the peace and love and all that. It comes before Woodstock. It's a bit more pure and less commercialised than Woodstock. Um, and she makes it big along with the Big Brother and the Holding Company, the band that she's the front woman for. Um, and then she goes solo, uh, and she has a lot of success solo, but she's literally dead two years later. Um, she's along with I think we discussed Hendrix in a previous A to Z podcast she's another one of these musical artists that the change in drugs you know from the 1960s when you're talking about you know marijuana and acid and then all of a sudden heroin becomes the new drug and a lot of people a lot of uh, musical artists famous ones at the time die as a result of it and she dies as a, of a heroin overdose in 1970 um, but then she has a post posthumous number one in 1971 with me and Bobby McGee um, sort of a famous re-recording of an old song, Chris Christopherson um, originally, I think. Yeah, and it, and it, and she also had a really the other thing I remember from that course was she she wasn't the typical sort of pin-up girl looks or anything, and throughout her the entire time she was famous, she really struggled with the fact that she wasn't, you know, as quote unquote good looking 
as all the other female artists that were out there at the time and I think that was one of the reasons that led to drug abuse. So a sad story in the end, but you know, um, still an important musical figure from the time. Yeah, an amazing blues rock voice. And just yeah, the, the power of her vocals is incredible. Unlike Hendrix, dies age twenty-seven. Yeah, I know. Yeah. That's incredibly young, isn't it? I know. Anyway, like, like uh, can That's we cheer up from here? Quite sad, isn't it? Uh, yeah. I know, I know. Uh, um, you know, knowing what's in the hat, I don't know how many happy ones we've got to go for. Yeah, I know. Um, right, let's see what have we got. Japanese internment. Oh God, another happy one. Uh, <laughs> right, so yes, now Franklin D. Roosevelt. Let's start with him. Considered one of America's greatest presidents, if not the greatest president uh, in American history. Definitely up there alongside Washington, etc., etc. Carter. Yes, yes, less of that. Uh, now, I've lost my train of thought. Where was it going? Yes. So, FDR, New Deal, World War II, all that kind of thing. But, as always, there's the dark side to anything. And I think one of the real dark sides of the FDR years during uh, World War II is the internment of Japanese Americans uh, in camps that are really not that fit for human habitation. You know, up in the high high prairies and semi deserts and arid scrublands, places like Manzanar, which is the most you know most famous one, uh, you know, recorded for posterity by the the great American photographer Ansel Adams in his photographs of the of the Japanese camps. Uh, and these were American citizens; they were Americans who professed their loyalty to the United States. There were many Japanese Americans who went and fought for. In the in the American military in World War Two, yeah, property owned businesses yeah. because of their ethnicity and background, they were put into these internment camps. Uh, but they were camps that actually one of the fascinating things in the Library of Congress has an amazing uh, digital collection of all this stuff. They were amazing print cultures within within some of these camps of camp news newsletters, pamphlets, educational materials, all of these kind of things that that demonstrate despite the privations of living in these fairly austere camps, a very vibrant culture that grew up in. Yeah, I mean, I actually, you know, I have to confess, I think the first time I ever heard about it, I mean, I would have been quite young when I first heard about it, it sort of made sense to me at first. I was sort of like, well, Japan was one of the enemies, you know, recently arrived, okay, maybe that makes sense. And then you start to think about it and you're like, well, they weren't locking up German-Americans. They weren't locking up Italian-Americans. So what is the difference here? And and then you start, and then you obviously you know all about how the what, how people viewed race back then. Yes, you know, like in a, in a very you know racial hierarchy, very racialized way. And yeah, you're right. No, it's a, it's probably the, the the biggest black mark of of, of Franklin Roosevelt's presidency is a Japanese determined. And I think that the Supreme Court also backed him up as well. The, I think it was Korematsu that versus the United States or something yeah. where the Supreme Court says that, no, no, what we're doing is perfectly legal. Um, so, yeah. Um, but they, I, th- I believe they got... Am I right in thinking that? I think in the Reagan years or something, they got an apology and compensation, I believe. I think it was something like 20000 for each person. So obviously, it doesn't make up for being interned for and having your property confiscated and all that but there was an acknowledgement later on that oh okay we maybe erred there um, and I'm not sure if the British government has ever done anything similar for 
the Italians that we we locked up. Um, well, yeah, I mean, there was certainly kind of like significant number of uh, you know British Italian men were you know sent off to Canada camps in Canada. Uh, you know, and then there was the sinking of the Arandora Star, uh, yeah, in which many hundreds of uh, internees uh, were killed uh, as the as the ship was uh, torpedoed. Uh, but and I think the kind of the memory of of Japanese internment is still sort of kept alive by there's some pretty famous figures who had childhood experiences in the camps. George Takai, Mister mm-hmm. Mister Sulu from Star Trek, uh, who's very very uh, you know prominent on social media and is a very very funny guy, uh, and and he frequently reflects on his his childhood experiences of of growing up in camps. I think it was in Arkansas and then California. Or something. His his family were were moved around. Uh, So I think it's something that perhaps, while not as prominent a part of kind of the cultural memory as it as it might be, I think is is receiving has received much more attention over the the last few decades. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, dokes, shall we move on? Do you have anything happier in the hat this time? Okay, let's uh, let's see if we can pull something happier out of the hat. Jefferson. <sighs> that's, that's an intake of breath because me and you have a very long running joke about if any time anyone publishes anything on Jefferson uh, we're like oh good a new book on Jefferson <laughs> we needed one of those um, because there's there's just so much that has been written about this one man um, who espoused lofty ideals but let's be honest did not live up to them um, I, I suppose I'll go at, at Jefferson from an angle of I found it quite interesting. I can't remember for what reason. I was researching stuff on presidential legacy and I was looking at Jefferson and Jefferson throughout history, so since his death, has basically gone, has been viewed by Americans as like a bad guy, then a good guy, then a bad guy, then a good guy, then a bad guy. Like I'm really simplifying things here, but essentially sort of falls in and out of fashion. Um, And like the... After his, obviously, what with the Civil War and everything and him being a slaveholder and after that he sort of falls out of fashion as being someone to celebrate. Then when you come to World War Two, like Franklin Roosevelt and other Americans use him as this to celebrate American values against fascism, you know, the sort of idea of all men are created equal um, as opposed to, you know, the way that the way that Hitler was behaving. Um. And, and and most recently, you know, fast forward to the present day and one of, you know, the Democrats have literally got rid of their famous Jefferson Jackson dinner because they don't want to be associated with either Thomas Jefferson or Andrew Jackson. And one of the reasons being, you know, the sort of revelations about the Sally Hemings, um, the, the the revelations about him sort of having sex with one of his, his slaves um, and fathering a child. I think it was just one child with... With, with his slaves so so yeah Jefferson's quite interesting in that way that he his legacy really goes up and down depending on what people are prioritising at that point um, in American history yep and of course I mean a lot of this uh, historiography on the relationship between uh, Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings who who was you know just a a girl when they first met and he was a, a grown man uh, I mean it's down to the great work of Annette Gordon Reed you know, the great historian who's done so much work over the years uh, on teasing out the threads of the Jefferson Hemings family 
uh, and her work is like, like absolutely uh, worth reading uh, from that point of view. I'd like to kind of like move away from Thomas Jefferson and talk about the most Jefferson place in America. That would be Jefferson City, Wisconsin. Not Missouri. No, Jefferson City, Not Wisconsin. Uh, for a very good reason, it's the most Jefferson place in America. Because Jefferson City, Wisconsin is in Jefferson County, Wisconsin, and also borders the town of Jefferson, which is not the same as Jefferson City. So you have Jefferson, the town, right next door to Jefferson City in the county of Jefferson. They should really have set the Jeffersons in Jefferson County. It's the most Jeffersonian place in America, uh, just if you take the the name of it. So yeah, it's in Wisconsin. There you go. And I've been through Jefferson, Jefferson, Wisconsin, going from Whitewater on my way uh, to Johnson Creek. That's a whole lot of information I w- that I did not know when I began today. And I hear you yes. ask, why were you going to Johnson Creek, Malcolm? I was going to Johnson Creek so I could catch the Badger bus to go into. Uh, is this the, is this story going to continue with you doing bizarrely named things? No, no, yes. no, no. I just I was catching the Badger bus into Milwaukee. There ah, you go. right, okay. It's the, cool. it's the state bus line in, in ah, Wisconsin. Right, okay. It's the state animal of Wisconsin, is, is the badger. Oh, of course. Yeah, I know. Very, yeah, yeah, badger great bus. knowledge. There you go. There you go. Right, uh, right okay. Oh, I think I've also got something that may be a wee bit, you know, more lighter than we've uh, been doing recently. The jazz singer, the film. I love how you think that's lighter than what we've been talking about. <laughs> I, I did say to you at the start, I have no idea what the jazz singer's about, so... You know, but it sounds fun. Is it just about somebody that sings jazz and yeah, you know, end happily just, ever after? It's just, it's just the film that about a guy. No, it's not just the film about a guy that sings jazz. So, uh, ja- the jazz singer in nineteen twenty seven was the first full length f- cinema film that had. Uh, it was the first talkie, is what I'm trying to say. So. Prior to that, there were films that had uh, synchronised recorded music to play along with the film. So they had a certain element of... Uh, oh, was the jazz singer audio. the first so, okay. but the ah. But the jazz singer is the one that has synchronised music going along, but also synchronised singing and speech in some sequences. Now, that is not all the way through the film. That's important to bear in mind. It's not every bit has talking or singing in it. But... Uh, yeah, so it's the first first of the genuine uh, uh, talkies. Uh, there you go. And it's, it stars uh, Al Jolson uh, oh, as, yeah. as, the, uh, as the, the, the jazz, this, you know, titular jazz singer. Now, viewing it today, one of the many problematic, the most problematic thing about... Uh, the jazz singer is the use of blackface. Is Al Jolson blacking up to sing some of the uh, of the songs? So, uh, so yeah, that is a problematic element. It's a very important film in the the history of cinema. But like many other important films from the silent into the the talky era. You know, Birth of a Nation as well. It has some deeply, deeply problematic uh, things going on in there. So it's best viewed as a, as a cinematic artefact of importance to the development of cinema 
and also as a historical artifact to look at the attitudes of the time and what was considered appropriate uh, and all that kind of thing. Uh, so, so yeah, it's it's a it's a it's an unu- it's a difficult film to watch these days because on what because you have this Al Jolson in blackface, but part of the story is that his character is is Jewish and is trying to make a mark for himself at a time where anti-Semitism is rife as well. And blackface is a way of getting round that for him. It's, it's hard to get across what the film's trying to do, uh, just talking about it like this, but it's it's complex and it's, yeah, difficult. It's actually quite a difficult watch. Yeah, I can't lie, I'm not going to be rushing out and watching it. Um, but You should, you're, yeah, you're a historian of the United States. Yeah, okay, well that's me told off. Yep. <laughs> right what next right what are we coming up to next uh, let us see what is coming out of the hat hang on I can't get my hand in the hat right well here we go Johnson whatever Johnson you see fit to mention Um. right I'm not I'm not going to do the obvious one uh, I'm not going to do Lyndon Johnson, because we're just about to finish off after this a six-part series on him. So I think we've talked enough. Um, I'm gonna go about. I'm gonna go with the one a hundred years before him, Andrew Johnson, and I. I mean, like Andrew Johnson was just the worst. I mean, we, I think we can all agree on that. Today, these days, that Andrew Johnson was was probably if he wasn't the worst, he was one of the well, one of the bottom three in the worst. But Are again, we talking I'm going to come back as in presidents. Yes, yes. Right. Or just the humans, like okay. I know he didn't. Okay. Uh, oh, yeah, fair enough. <laughs> like I mean, he just like if you read anything about Andrew Johnson, he just comes across as one of the nastiest men there ever was. I mean, like you think he's done a good thing by not joining the. He's you know he's from Tennessee and he doesn't join the confederacy so you think he's doing that and he makes him a good guy it's not it's because he is jealous and hates plantation owners and so like and he just feels hard done to hard done to by them so he's like well i'm not going to go join their game i'll stick with this game somehow becomes you know abraham lincoln's vice presidential candidate to balance the ticket um and then when he becomes president and admittedly one of his funnier moves, but just to prove this motivation, has all of the plantation owners send people to beg him for forgiveness to let them back into the Union. Like, literally queued up out the White House and round. You have, you like, you know, you know the, 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 the madam of the house there with the apologetic letter saying, please let us back in, Andrew. Please give us our, our, our estates back. And he almost, he gave, he, all, he gave them all back. He just wanted to be asked. So he, he was not on the side of, and you know, obviously plays a lot of, big role in reinserting the black codes and all that which pretty much tried to re-establish slavery but and this is back to my point about Jefferson Andrew Johnson was not always universally thought to be the worst or one of the worst presidents all the way up until the 1960s and when historians started to reassess reconstruction and go oh maybe it wasn't a bad thing that black people had rights in the south because historians for ages said oh no yeah black people got rights and they started pissing in the aisles they did all these horrible corrupt things watch birth of a nation that's history type thing and then historians in the 1950s 60s went actually maybe that wasn't history and started to reassess it and went oh maybe andrew jackson who was at that time rated as a sort of middling president was actually one of the worst you mean andrew johnson 
Andrew Johnson. Andrew Jackson's crap as well. Yeah, but, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. He does. Yeah. He does. He accomplishes the odd thing. But Andrew Johnson is beyond awful in almost every single way. I think the thing I respect about him the most is. Nah, I'm not even. I'm not even going to say it. Anyway, that's Andrew Johnson. He tur- Do you he, have a Johnson? He turned up at Congress drunk and started shouting at everyone. Yeah, I kind of found that funny. That was roughly where I was going with it. Yeah, right. I'd uh, like to talk about uh, Lyndon B. Johnson. <sighs> that guy. Yeah. No, no, not your Lyndon B. Johnson. The other Lyndon B. Johnson. I'm I'm silent and awaiting an expectation. He's, uh, Lind- Lyndon B. Johnson. Uh, he's the defensive end for the Arizona Cardinals American football team. <laughs> uh, you know, plays number 96. Uh, yeah, there you go. That's actually true. Yeah, yeah, he was a college footballer for Cincinnati. Uh, and he he's now he's now playing with the, the Arizona Cardinals. Started off his pre- professional career with the Jacksonville Jankers. There you go. Lyndon Baines Johnson Jr. Good for him. Yeah, it's a tough time. It's a tough time in American support to have your initials be LBJ, and because nobody's going to re- remember yeah. you. What with LeBron James yeah, out there, so well, uh, all power to LB- LBJ Junior. is named after his father, obviously Lyndon Baines Johnson Senior, who was named after Lyndon Baines Johnson, the president, who was president when Lyndon Baines Johnson Senior was born. I wonder if Johnson paid them to do that because Johnson used to pay people to call their cows LBJ and stuff like that just to get the name out there. So. Yeah, well, that's really maybe he did, maybe he didn't. Who knows? Yeah, yeah. There we anyway, go. there you go. So that's another LBJ. Yeah, okay, Oaks. Right, I think we're coming to the end here. And admittedly, we've actually had an extra couple of minutes because I forgot to start the clock. Oh, there it goes. There it goes, and uh, we are done. Yeah, uh, I was looking forward to telling you the story of jump in the broom. Yeah, well, you know? that's for another time. That is for another. We can, time. Maybe we can put it in B broom jumping the. <laughs> I mean, there was you know there, there was other things in the hat that we didn't get to talk about. Upton Sinclair's novel, The Jungle, uh, yeah. uh, charismatic but ultimately deadly uh, religious leader Jim Jones. Yeah. Oh, Jim Jones. There's another documentary we could have talked about. Yes. Uh, another yeah. and, and Jamestown as well. I was looking forward to talking about just how horrible and how if you had to transplant me into one place at one time, it would the place I would choose not to be would be Jamestown. And on that, I can think of several places I wouldn't want to be, but yes, that's one of them. Yeah. Right. Cheerio. That's Jay. Excellent.